Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Employment Matters Podcast, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the world. I'm your host today, Philippe Durand, partner at Auguste de Bouzy in France. On the program, we span the globe and receive updates on critical issues from ELA members in each region. On today's episode, we will be discussing immigration updates in the United Kingdom. Joining us on the program are Katie Good and Moji Oyedaran, Associate and Senior Associate at Travis Smith in London. Katie and Moji, welcome on the program. We are delighted to have you today and thanks for joining us. How are you doing? Hi, Philip. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for having us, Philip. Good. So maybe I would start with you, Moji, because uh, immigration not only before Brexit, but also after Brexit, immigration is certainly a typical topic in, in the United Kingdom, in your country. And I understand, Moji, that you have had recently a number of changes, including some significant changes that were around during this month in December 2023, as we are recording this podcast. Yes, that's right. We've had quite a few changes recently. Some of those have taken effect already during this year, and some are coming in during the early part of next year. So I'd say this podcast is quite timely, really, and we will hopefully look to cover the key updates this year, as well as looking forward to what we expect to see come into force next year. Moji, could we start then with the changes that have already come into force? And firstly, I understand that as we are preparing for this podcast, there have recently been a big increase to the immigration fees that are charged for applicants by the United Kingdom government. Could you elaborate a bit on this, please? Yeah, that's right. Um, in October 2023, we've seen the UK visa application fees for a variety of work-related visas increase by around 15%. So as an example, the fee for a five-year skilled worker visa, so that's somebody on a, on a work-sponsored visa, it used to be £1,235, and that fee has now increased to £1,420. We've also seen an increase of around 25%, so the cost of the super priority service, which is what applicants can use to expedite the decision in their applications. So for applications submitted in the UK, that fee has increased from £800, which is the previous fee, to the new fee of £1,000. So that's to get a five working day decision in an application. Well, Moji governments are certainly very smart. 25% inflation on those fees is, uh, <laughs> is quite <laughs> significant. But are you expecting any other increases to, to fees in the near future? Yes, we've actually had an announcement that um, other fees will be going up as well. So the immigration health surcharge or the IHS fee will also be increasing from the 16th of January 2024. Now, the IHS is paid by most visa applicants at the time they make their application. And the idea is that contributes towards the cost of running the UK's National Health Service. The IHS is currently set at a rate of £624 per person per year of the visa duration that they apply for. And that fee will now go up in January next year to £1,035 per person per year. That represents, I'd say, quite a significant additional cost for visa applicants. 
And what we're seeing is that some employers are now looking to see whether they can bring forward visa applications where possible so they can take advantage of the uh, the current lower fee levels. We've also seen the government actually announce that they will increase the fines or, or civil penalties that they impose on employers. So where an employer has employed an individual who doesn't have permission to work in the UK, they can be subject to a fine of, at the moment, £15,000 for a first-time offence. From next year, the fees will actually be increasing to £45,000 for a first-time offence. And any employers who have previously been fined in this way, their potential fine could go up from the current level of £20,000 to a new level that's coming in of £60,000 per illegal worker. Well, that's uh, <laughs> these are, again, significant increases. But just for the sake of clarity, Moji, those amounts only apply, if I understand you correctly, to employers who would have been employing workers in an illegal manner, correct? Yes, that's right. So if you have an employer who has completed the prescribed right-to-work checks and they've kept the evidence of the checks they've undertaken, they wouldn't be subject to a fine. And that's even if an individual turns out not to have the correct work permission. However, the prescribed compliance checks are very specific and the requirements have changed a number of times recently, so it can be all very confusing. So in light of the tripling of potential fines, I'd say now would be a good time for employers to actually review their processes and records just so they can be sure that everything is as robust as possible. We've actually recently been helping quite a number of clients conduct sort of health checks and reviews of their policies, as well as providing training to to staff doing the checks ahead of all these changes coming into force. Well, I think, Moji, this tip about this kind of audit you were just suggesting is certainly a good idea. Katie, I would like to turn to you now, and I would like to move on to another recent change which has been introduced in immigration regulations in the UK recently, or is about to be introduced, you'll tell us more in two seconds. That's about this new electronic system for visitors. What are we talking about here? Yes, that's correct. So the UK government has recently introduced a new electronic travel authorization or ETA system, which is very similar to the ESTA in the US. It's being rolled out gradually in phases and will eventually cover everyone visiting the UK on a visa-free basis for tourism or business. The ETA will be valid for two years once issued and then will cover multiple trips to the UK. Of course, it won't apply to British or Irish nationals who would obviously enter on the basis of their passport. Phase one of the rollout kicked off on the 25th of October of this year. And ETA applications opened for Qatari nationals for travel from the 15th of November. And then from the 1st of February next year, the ETA will apply to nationals from Bahrain, Jordan, Kuwait, Oman, the UAE and Saudi Arabia. It's expected to apply to all non-British and Irish nationals from the end of next year. So at that stage, it will include EU passport holders, as well as US, Canada and Australia, for example. It's interesting to see, Katie, that uh, the program will start expanding or uh, kicking in with the Middle East countries. 
But mm. do you, from a broader perspective, do you anticipate any difficulties with this new system? So it's perhaps a little bit too early to say, but the addition of the pre-approval process could potentially add a considerable amount of administration for people visiting the UK who do not require visas. At the moment, individuals can simply travel to the UK and they seek entry at the border without any pre-authorization required. Um, what we also don't know at the moment is whether there could potentially be delays in receiving the ETAs once an application has been made. The processing time, according to the UK government, is expected to be within three working days. But if there are technical glitches in the system or there's a high volume of applications, then it could mean that the applications themselves take longer, which could then potentially impact those who travel on short notice. So, for example, business travellers coming into the UK. Yeah, uh, I was as I was listening to you, I was thinking about ESTA in the US and Yes. ESTA, for all, all of us who've been traveling to the US, ESTA works pretty well because you do mm. have a reply uh, very quickly. And uh, your future ETA, ETA, ETA in, in the UK, I think its success will highly depend on the delays that the government will reply for those applications. Mm. Now, you're talking about ETA, ETA for the UK, ESTA in the US, I was just talking about. It seems that there's a, like a, a trend, a bit of a trend with other countries that now are willing to introduce similar digital systems? Yeah, exactly. That's correct. So actually, the EU will be launching an electronic travel authorization system as well in hopefully 2025, although it has been pushed back quite a few times already. It's called the European Travel Information and Authorization System, or commonly referred to as ETIAS. And this will be introduced for those who are visiting the EU from a non-EU country who do not currently need a visa. So like the UK's ETA and the ESTA, the application will need to be submitted online ahead of travel. It's expected to cost around seven euros. And then once an ETIAS has been issued, it should be valid for three years from the date of issue or until the date the travel document expires. So it permits multiple entries in and out of the EU. Now, once both the ETA in the UK and the ETIAS becomes fully operational, the time and administrative process as discussed for these applications will need to be factored in ahead of any travel, which involves entry to the UK, as well as Europe, as the two systems will operate entirely independently of each other. So holders of an ETA will still need a valid ETIAS to travel on to the EU. And this will be particularly relevant for lots of US or Canadian travellers who often travel to an EU country as part of a visit to the UK or vice versa. So actually, we talked about ESTA, we talked about for the US, we talked about ETA for the UK, ETIAS for the EU in, in the near future. All those systems are quite digital. And this is the same, of course, for the UK system, the, the ETA that you talked about. Uh, Moji, if I turn on to you, could you tell us a bit more about what this new digital system in the UK is going to look like over the next, uh, say, 12 months? 
Yeah, I think it's fair to say that digital technology has played quite a a central role in the UK immigration system and the recent reforms we've seen, particularly after Brexit. The launch of the EU settlement scheme, which was for European nationals living in the UK back in 2019, was a pivotal moment in this transformation, I'd say, because that was an entirely digital application process. And applicants were able to submit their biometric details using an app on their smartphone and they could then submit their application forms online and also the visa, the immigration status, so the settlement status they received was also issued exclusively digitally. Now since then, I'd say the UK government has continued in their efforts to digitise all the different parts of the UK immigration system and what we've seen this year is that they've actually confirmed that physical visa documents are going to be entirely phased out eventually. So at the moment, applicants are granted visas and are issued a biometric residence permit card with their visa stated on on there. Going forward, these will be phased out. And what we'll have is that applicants will be issued an online record of their immigration status that will be referred to as an e-visa. Now, these e-visas are already being issued to EU nationals applying for UK status, as well as certain nationalities when they apply for their visas from within the UK. So the individuals need to register for an online account and then they will use that to view and then also to share the relevant information about their status. And that can be done securely with third parties. So if they have to share their evidence of their visa to employers or with a landlord when renting a property, that can be done digitally. Now, while the biometric residence permit cards are being phased out, so the physical visa documents, what we have is that the current cards that have been issued, they all have an expiry date of the 31st of December or, uh, next year. And that's supposed to be the end date by which new electronic systems will be in place. And that expiry date on the face of the card doesn't affect the underlying visa that the person has. Their visa continues to be valid even beyond the card expiry date, as they'll then have the e-visa confirmation to verify their continuing status. Well, that's uh, certainly good to know from a practical point of view, Moji, particularly for business travelers listening to us uh, today. Katie, are there any other changes that you guys would have in store for those visitors, for business uh, visitors to the UK uh, in 2024? Do you have any details on uh, what we could expect? Yes, actually. So the UK government published its autumn statement in November, which ordinarily sets out the government's spending plans and budgets. But the statement also included some hidden immigration proposals that they would like to introduce next year. Now, one of those changes is to the business visitor regime, which the government has said it would like to expand with wider coverage for the legal services sector and simplified arrangements for those who are undertaking paid engagements in the UK. The activities that can be undertaken on an intercorporate basis by employees coming to the UK office from their overseas employer are also due to be broadened and clarified And then we also understand that there is an intention to amend the business visitor rules with scope to further enhance provisions based on trade negotiations. 
Now, there was no date that has been set for these changes in the autumn statement, but it will be interesting to see how these develop over the next 12 months. Well, I guess, Katie, this is particularly interesting, of course, but I guess, Katie, that this will be certainly relevant in view of uh, future changes or, or changes to be expected coming alongside the trade negotiations. Yeah, exactly. I mean, by way of an example, we've recently seen the UK extend the Youth Mobility Scheme, which is a reciprocal visa arrangement whereby nationals of certain qualifying countries aged between 18 and 30 can come to live and work in the UK for a period of time. Now, Australian, Canadian and New Zealand applicants, because of the trade negotiations, can benefit from preferential provisions following the agreements between the UK and those countries. India was also added as a new country to benefit from the youth mobility visa. And the autumn statement confirms that the UK government intends to expand those youth mobility schemes in 2024, although we don't know yet which specific countries the UK government intends to sign agreements with. But it would be great to see more countries added, especially including EU countries as well. So, Katie, we'll keep, uh, we'll certainly keep an eye on this. Moji, I would like uh, to share maybe a word of conclusion with you for our audience today. Are there any other proposed changes that you would be aware of for, uh, in terms of uh, immigration rules in the UK for 2024 and that uh, you could elaborate on a little bit? Yes, yeah, we've had this week, actually, the government has announced some quite far-reaching changes to the UK's immigration system, and that's all part of a, a five-point plan that they plan to introduce with effect from spring of 2024. So we're expecting more details to be issued, hopefully later in December or early next year, on the basis that those changes might then come into force in around April of 2024. Now, there's a five-point plan. So firstly, the minimum salary threshold to qualify for a skilled worker visa is said to be increased by nearly 50%. So from the current level of 26,200, it's going to go up to 38,700. Secondly, the salary discounts, which currently apply to jobs on what we call a shortage occupation list. So that's a specified list that will actually be abolished and the list will be reformed and significantly reduced. So currently jobs on the shortage list, they can be paid salaries at a rate that is up to 20% less than the going rate. And then thirdly, the graduate visa route, which at the moment allows international students to apply to work in the UK for at least two years after graduating. That's also said to be reviewed and potentially also reformed. And then fourthly, the level of income that a British national or someone who is living in the UK and is settled here, the level of income they need in order to be able to apply to bring a dependent family member to live with them in the UK will also increase quite significantly, actually, from the current rate, which is £18,600 um, per annum salary. They'll now, um, when the changes come into force, would need to have a £38,700 minimum annual salary. And that's raised quite significant concerns around how this measure will impact lower income 
British citizens. And then the final point in the five-point plan is that those who come to the UK on visas under the health and care category, they will no longer be able to bring a dependent spouse or children with them. And that change will come in if the changes come into force as currently announced. Now, the UK government has said that this plan will help to reduce net migration, but the new measures are likely to cause quite significant difficulties for employers as they're you know, struggling to recruit skilled and specialist talent. And the announcements really follow the release of the net migration numbers at the end of November, because those showed that levels were at an all-time high. And what we may see is that there might be more changes coming into force, even across other categories that we've we've not yet seen changes in. And employers will just want to keep an eye out on the future changes and look at how those might impact their recruitment and planning needs. Well, Mooji, this sounds to me like uh, new restrictions that the UK government is trying to put on certain items in the uh, immigration requirements, and that could lead to a big political debate that we're not going to have today following <laughs> Brexit and this net migration number, I thought, mm-hmm. was also uh, very interesting. Thank you very much to, to both of you, Katie and Moji. It's been very interesting. We, we covered a lot of topics, increasing fees, new digital tools, new constraints and eligibility for migrating in the UK, and plus other topics. So thank you for your time. It was really a pleasure uh, talking with you you both today. Thank you, Philippe. Thank you so much for having us. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. If you would like to connect with Katie or Moji, please click on their bios in the description of this podcast. We also encourage you to reach out to any of our lawyers around the world by selecting Find a Lawyer on the ELA website at ela.law.law. In addition, Search the ELA website where you can sign up to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers and on-demand content from our online library or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Philippe Durand. Thanks for listening.